Well, happy Palm Sunday. So last week, Pastor Dill read from the scriptures what took place that day and basically that entire week. To snapshot, Palm Sunday is the Sunday Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem at Passover week when it was starting. The crowds were shouting, and what we just sang, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. See, this word Hosanna is a Hebrew origin based from Psalm chapter 118, verse 25 to 26. It says, Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. It is based on these Hebrew words, save, yasha, and beseech, Anna. It's to create that shout of praise, Hosanna, please save us, Messiah, Lord, save us. See, on that day, a 500-year-old prophecy from Zechariah 9, specifically verse 9, the prophecy was fulfilled in every particular. It was indeed a time of rejoicing as Jerusalem had welcomed their king. See, a very large crowd, they spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and they spread them on the road. John's Gospel mentions the trees that were used were palm trees, hence where we get the name Palm Sunday. However, the celebration didn't seem to last, seeing how just a few days later, the same people among that crowd were shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! And now, it wasn't completely unreasonable for the people to think their deliverance from their Roman oppressor was about to happen Because the rest of Zechariah, after verse 9, shows that the king is going to be prevailing over the nation. And because that didn't happen, yet, is what leads many Jewish people to reject Jesus as their Messiah. Because they claim the salvation did not come as they cried out for. What they missed is salvation did indeed come. Just not the one that they were thinking. I argue it was an even better one. It wasn't a political salvation. It was a spiritual one to deliver them from their greatest true enemy, their sin. Not just for the nation of Israel, but for all people. They failed to see the aspect of the two comings of the Messiah in the Old Testament. One as a servant who would give his life for the people and other to bring justice and order for the nations. See, one day that political deliverance the Jews looked for will happen. That will be at his second coming. But until then, we've got some work to do. See, Titus chapter 3 is our text this morning. And I actually have a cool personal connection with this passage. Every time I read it, I actually think about my son Elias' birth. Now, to explain, it's not actually anything to do with the passage in itself that indicates it. So my son's birthday was on Tuesday, February 5th, 2019. Yeah, he's, almost, he's turning five this year. I was scheduled for the pulpit that Sunday before, on the 3rd. And I was working through Titus chapter 3 as the text to be preached on that Sunday. And however, as Tabitha, the Bible says, great with child in that language, was getting closer and closer to labor. It was so hard to focus, and I had spoken with Ray, and he offered to switch, and so I had swapped the Sundays with Brother Ray. 
Now, I did not send any sermon notes or had any kind of conversations with Ray and what I had started. And guess which passage he happened to preach on that Sunday? Titus chapter 3. Amen. So I just laughed and thought to myself, well, I guess God really wanted Titus 3 that day. (laughs) See, the book of Titus found towards the back of our Bibles has been categorized as a pastoral epistle. Along with 1st and 2nd Timothy, these letters are from Paul and written to individuals rather than to churches when he commonly does. Both men, Titus and Timothy, were men that worked with Paul during his missionary journeys and were eventually tasked with pastoral type duties. Timothy to the church at Ephesus, Titus, and in this book at the time, he was to the island of Crete. He had previously already done work in Corinth. I think there's something about Titus, though, that distinguishes him from the rest of the figures we see in our New Testament. He was a Gentile, not a Jew. See, unlike Timothy also, who had God's word taught to him as a young child, Titus did not have the word taught growing up in his life. Yet, he received the word gladly from Paul. He became a Christian and became one of Paul's greatest commanders and partners in the faith. He was even part of the conflict among the Jewish teachings that Gentiles, that they had to be circumcised, they had to adopt all the manners of the law in order to follow Jesus as a necessity. They're adding works to the faith. And we can see based off the task that Titus was given, he was well trusted by Paul and a man of great integrity and probably quite the problem solver. See, I wonder if Titus ever thought to himself, Lucky Timothy gets to minister to the Ephesians, and I get the Corinthians, and I get the Cretans. These were not the easy people. Titus did not have easy people groups at all. See, in Titus, he is tasked in part of his ministry on Crete to ordain elders to help grow the church. And here in chapter 3, he's giving further instructions to be passed to the people. Beginning in verse 1. It says, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, The kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Our Father, we thank you so much for such the rich, wonderful truths uh, we have in the book of Titus, Lord, and the work that you did uh, through, through Paul, Lord, and through Titus. I pray, Lord, that the text will be uh, received gladly, Lord, and that your word will not be returned void as promised. We thank you so much for the reminders we get to have in the text and the things we get to cling to. We love you and thank you for our time in your house. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So beginning, we see a reminder of the conduct in this world for them. Verses 1 through 2, it says, But put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, simply to be in subjection to the earthly leaders. See, Paul starts with saying to put them in mind. See, this original word here implies that they were taught before. 
It's this word that's meaning to cause to remember. Hupomenesco is actually that original word. It's to cause to remember, to put in remembrance. We can communicate as remind them to do this. See, teachings from the word isn't going to be just a one-time thing, especially when it comes to behavioral change. You know, some things in this life are needed to be heard many times over and over and over before it finally sinks in. The gospel is a great example of that. Some people have to hear the gospel 200 times before they finally get it, if not even more. But to be in subject to principalities and powers, and that powers it comes from the Greek word exousia, meaning an authority. He's writing to, to Titus regarding governing, and to Timothy, he writes this regarding governing rulers. He writes to pray for them. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1-2 through two says this. It says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. All examples of prayers in that one verse alone. He says, for kings, for emphasis, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. See, but here in Titus chapter 3, he writes simply to be in subjection to them. And it could be implied that the people of Crete and history would tell us that they had issues submitting to and following their governing leaders. Paul also says to obey magistrates. Now the word here I found is very interesting. It's one word in the New Testament. Pathar keo, composed of two words, one that means to obey, and the archeo is talking about a rule. So this is a special type of obedience found in the New Testament. It's implied immediately some form of a higher power. Only used four times in the Bible. The same word Peter uses when he says this, that we ought to obey God rather than man. That political power and context is a higher one indeed, but only because a higher power granted it. See, Paul taught that our witness requires us to be subject to rulers and authorities. Now, this does not mean we cannot voice strong disagreements or even do everything lawful to get the godless officials removed from their position. Some want to say this only applies to godly, good rulers. Yet, I don't see how this works, seeing how Nero was Caesar at this time. Anything but a godly man. We should desire godly rulers and do our due diligence as citizens to vote. But nevertheless, whether a good or bad ruler, we must show them respect for them as individuals and respect for the office that they hold, and matter of fact, in which God put them in. We are to obey the laws of our society unless those laws would require us to disobey the law of God. See, our first loyalty is to God, second to the state. He says then to be a godly example among all. He says to be, every, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. See, in addition to being subjection and obedience to the laws of the land, they are to be ready to every good work, to go beyond the legal obligations to include doing anything that benefit others in society. Good citizens, even better Christians. To speak evil of no man. The word here is blasphemeo. This word means to blasphemy or slander. Not just the governing rulers, 
but the extension is to all people. See, especially as a new Christian, our tongues are one of the toughest things to get under control. And if you want to combat this, start speaking good of others instead. We're taught even as kids, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say nothing at all. See, that idea of sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me, that is so untrue. To speak evil of no man. He says here to be no brawlers, meaning someone not contentious and always looking to fight, whether it be a physical or an argumentative one. We actually had a reminder of one um, in our Sunday school class today, kind of those customers that come in always want to pick a fight with the employees for no reason. You don't need to be some kind of contentious person. We're all human beings here. doesn't mean we become an absolute total pacifist. We learn to control ourselves and know the times when to fight and when to not. The next word will even show this. But here in Psalm 34, 34, 14, it says this. It says, depart from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. So instead of being a brawler, be a peacemaker. And it's not going to be 100% possible with everybody in this world. Romans 12, 18 says this. If it be possible as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. He carries on, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. Strength or power under control is how that word meekness is defined. Power under control. See, this isn't the idea of a timid or a weak person. You don't become the world's doormat or anyone's doormat. See, Moses and Jesus were both described as meek. Jesus says, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Yet, were these weak men? Not even close. See, we do not always have to have our way. We can defer to others. We can choose to not let others get under our skin. If you want another way to define meekness, be unoffendable and be gentle. You don't have to take everything so personally. You know when to let things go. You have power under control. He gives them a reminder of who they were and who we were as well. Why we can show meekness and gentleness. It says, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lust and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. It's the reason we can be respectful to all the people. How can we show meekness to others? We weren't so different. Paul writes a similar thing to the Ephesians in chapter 2. It says verse 1 through 3, And you hath he quickened, that means to make alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had all our conversation, that's talking about your manner of life, in times past in the lust of flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, by nature, the children of wrath, even as others. See, our spiritual condition was far worse than just not good. You were dead in trespasses and sin. See, in Titus, we read foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lust and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. See, earlier in Titus, Paul acknowledges that these particular people are indeed difficult. 
Verse 12 through 13, chapter 1, says, One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, says, The Cretans are always evil, liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Titus is going to have quite the work end for him. And notice what Paul didn't write. He didn't write, you know, they're troublesome people. Let's go find an easier group. But this just goes to show the heart of God. No matter how far you think you've gone, you can be saved. You can be changed by our God. Something that took me a while to grasp. And when I became a new believer, I needed to grasp to not be so surprised when someone who is lost behaves like a lost person. We should not be surprised when lost people behave like lost people. I had to learn just because I was a new creation in Christ didn't mean, and in my flesh, I was any better than I was around. No one around me, I was not better than them. I was better off because I had eternal life, but I am no better than anybody else, especially in my flesh. Because a saved person is just as capable choosing poorly, just as a lost person. When a, when a saved person is not walking in the Spirit, he is capable of making all the dumb, exact mistakes as a lost man can do. So if this is the case, how could we look down on another and slander another? Because of who we were, we can look on others with grace. Because this is who we are now to those who know Jesus. We are no longer in that life. Sometimes we like to live in that life, but we have a new man, a new righteous spirit we are to walk by. He then carries on to remind of where we stand now and how they stand that way. It's God's kindness and mercy that was shown to us. It says, but after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. One of the coolest contrasts we find in Scripture. This is who you were, and this is how you walked, but the kindness and love of God our Savior towards man appeared. See, people out there like to think, oh, I'm just so glad I found God and I did all these choices to find him. God made the first move. His love and kindness appear to us. Not because of how smart, good-looking, or wonderful person you could become or the potential you might have. It was because of God's kindness and his love. God saved us and he made us new apart from any of our own efforts. Five through seven, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. His mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That being justified by his grace, we should make heirs according to the hope of eternal life. To emphasize something over and over taught in the scripture, being saved, salvation is not by your own works or efforts. Ephesians says this along with the same aspects. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. By the way, this should be like the immediate verse we all add to our memory. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And if it was dependent on our own works of righteousness, we would be in absolute big trouble. 
Isaiah 64, 6. It says, But we are all as unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Even our own best efforts will never measure up. It was according to God's mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, it says. Verse says, by his mercy. Mercy is giving, not giving us what we deserve, to be left to our own demise. A judgment not one person will pass, and to be separated from God in a place called hell. God chose to not give us that by his mercy but by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Many have falsely concluded that that phrase washing is talking about baptism. Yet such a conclusion contradicts the first statement of that verse. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Not a baptism. It's talking about the new birth. See, God washes us from sin by the blood of Christ. This cleansing produces new life in Christ. Renewed comes from the word be new again. We have a true righteousness and renewed spirit. He's making us into someone like his son, like Jesus. He uses that as a metaphor to talk about how he cleanses us. Ephesians 5.26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it, talking about the church, with the washing of water by the word. No baptism anywhere in that context. Which he shed abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The which is talking about the Holy Spirit. We have His Spirit in us through Christ our Savior. See, I want to point out something cool. From these three verses, a basic Christian belief is this. We believe God is one God existing in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We call it the Trinity. Yes, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but we had that concept greatly there. From verses 3 through 6 in Titus, all three members are present in the process of salvation. We'll read it again, the verse 4. But after that, the kindness of the love of God, our Savior. God, our Savior, the Father, towards man appeared. Not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing, regeneration, and renewing. Of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Interesting. We read God, our Savior, and we also read Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's look at Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43 says, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed. Neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord. Besides me, there is no what? Besides me, there is no Savior. So how many Saviors are there in Isaiah 43? One. Yet Paul described both God and Jesus as Savior with the same terminology. Either we got a contradiction in Scripture, or this must be true. They are the same. Jesus is God, our Savior. If God equals Savior and Jesus equals Savior, then Jesus equals God. You like my math? That being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according 
to the hope of eternal life. We have a hope now, and we have quite the future ahead of us as heirs. All because God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, justified us by his grace. Not by anything we have done, not any works of righteousness. It's all because of what he did, not what we did. Yes, we indeed must place our trust in Jesus to save us for what he did on the cross of Calvary. But the credit is not ours. He did all the saving. No person boasts about a gift that they just received on their birthday or on Christmas. They never boast about how smart they were to receive it. Oh, man, I just can't believe no one else does this. I love this gift so much. I get all the credit. It's my gift. But instead, who do they credit? They credit the giver. And if salvation is a free gift only provided through Jesus Christ, he gets all the credit. He did all the work. We were without hope. Our condition was depraved. But the kindness of the, and love of God our Savior appeared. Many like to think something about themselves has to contribute. Well, I need to be good enough. I need to go to church enough. Well, but if I joined a church, well, I've got to get baptized. There's no way I can be go to heaven without a baptism. You should get baptized. That's not going to make you go to heaven. If you're depending on a baptism to get you to heaven, you're just going to get wet. And guess what? When you finally trust Christ, when you finally recognize the Savior, you're going to get baptized the right way. You just got wet. You didn't have a scriptural baptism. It's not even a sinner's prayer. That sinner's prayer, what? Don't all the preachers out there go out and say, well, hey, pray this, I pray after me, and your name will be in the book of life. Everywhere on TV. You know how many people are going to hell because they're depending upon a prayer that they prayed as a kid? The sinner's prayer doesn't save. The blood of Jesus is what saves. Yes, you may have prayed. You may have prayed to Jesus when you, when you got saved. But it wasn't because of the prayer, the words you uttered or repeated. It was because the heart put your tr- the trust in Jesus alone to save. We don't teach the sinner's prayer here. We don't get kids to repeat words after us. It's easy to manipulate a kid into salvation, believe me. But only those who understand the hope of the gospel to know what Jesus did for them and why he did it can someone be saved. If this is something you've never done in your life, I urge you to consider these things. If there is a God and there is a heaven and hell and you have an eternal destiny in one of those places, don't you think it's crucial to find out where you're going as soon as possible? We can help you to make sure where you stand between God directly from the scripture, not from some kind of tradition, not from some kind of little gospel, gospel little pattern, from the Bible we can show you where the Bible, what the Bible says about heaven and hell, how you get there, and where you can go and how you can be sure. See, the people in the streets that day were right to cry out and shout, Hosanna in the highest, because he indeed is the God who saves Our Savior has come, he defeated the grave, and he will come again. We get to look forward to his victory next week as we celebrate the Resurrection Sunday. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are bountifully blessed, Lord, by the truth of the word, by the gospel that's so powerful. How Christ was sent, Lord, how he died, how he was buried, and he rose again, defeating the grave. 
and that eternal life is absolutely made available to anyone who would put their trust in you to save them. That is a wonderful message that we all must be so clear on, Lord. And many out there in this world, they miss it because of something that troubles them along the way, whether it be their own efforts or just unsure uncertainty, Lord, if the Bible's even trustworthy, Lord. I just pray that you would draw these people near to yourself, Lord, and you give us a reason to rejoice and to remind us of who we were and who we are now, that we can continuously, with strength, live for you, Lord. And Father, but we need your help in that, Lord. But for now, we thank you for the wonderful gift of salvation and mercy that we hold so dearly. We love you and thank you for our time in your house. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Good job. Good job. Let's stand again. I'm, uh, I, I never cease to be amazed at what contradictory statements are made in churches. The gospel says how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and the third day raised according to the scriptures. We know that Christ died for our sins. And then we, I'm not talking about us here, I'm talking about we as ministers all over the world and then we tell you you've got to do something else for your sins to get to heaven you got to get baptized to go to heaven the thought that occurred to me when Justin mentioned that is that if you think baptism is going to help you get to heaven you're all wet because that's all you are is wet Baptism is a wonderful thing. Do you think helping your neighbor is a good thing? Sure, it's a good thing. Do you think it's a necessary thing for life and for, you know, living your life? Yeah, it's a good thing. Well, baptism is a good thing. If you're saved, it makes you part of a real church. And folks, that's a good thing. But unless you're going to heaven first, it won't help you. Because that's not how you get there. It's not what happens. It's not how it works. Your spirit is dead in trespasses and sins before you come to Jesus. Every one of us. That's why, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. They weren't, they weren't in a box ready to go in a grave. They were walking around. Not talking about the physical. It's talking about the spiritual. That's why there's no spiritual desires. There's no desire to do those good things and be in those right places and all those other things because the spirit is dead. Nothing, nothing's working there. Yet we tell you we, I'm not talking about us, I'm talking about in general. Yeah, we tell you, well, if you'll repent of your sin, well, if, if I've got to repent of my sins to go to heaven, why does the Bible say Jesus died for my sins? Did he die for my sins, but he couldn't get the job done, so I've got to do this too and add to that? 
I just want to say, there are so many contradictions being preached all over the place. No wonder people are so confused. If I had the strength to repent of my sins, that'd be something, wouldn't it? The Bible says, for when we were yet without strength, strength to do what? Anything righteous, (laughs) you name it. Christ died for the ungodly. The The greatest thing I ever learned in my life, I learned when I was a young flat belly like some of you younger people are out there now. I was shown from the word of God that the reason Christ died was because I couldn't do anything about my sin. And he said that he would handle it for me. And he died to do it. And if I would trust that his death was enough, he would take care of my problem. And you know what I told the Lord that night after I saw that? I said, I'm in. I trust you. you. You handle it. I can't. I know I can't. So I'm turning it over to you. And you know what he did? He did exactly what he said he would do. He handled it. He gave me a peace in my heart. He changed my life. Oh, he didn't change the outward. He changed the inward. So that I saw everything differently and I, all of my desires were completely transformed. I never saw anything like I, like I did before. He did exactly what he said he would do. He handled my sin problem. I, sometimes I think, how could, as a lost person, you've got to wonder, and I remember wondering, what would it be like to live as a real Christian? And they, they don't know. They've got all these ideas. Well, that means I got to this and I got to that and I got to be this and I got to be that. And I can't do that, but I can't. It's a whole bunch of don'ts and a whole bunch of you can't do this and a whole bunch of rules. That's a lie. You know, you know what Jesus did when he saved me? He took all the rules and he threw them in the trash. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Not rules. I could never keep the rules. I still can't keep the rules. Anybody here keeping the rules? Even know the rules. Jesus took all of that away. He took all of my worries, all of my concerns, all of my doubts. He took it away. and he, I didn't know what he did with it until I read the Bible, but the Bible says he took it and he cast it as far away as the east is from the west. Now, if I remember right, east is that way. If you start out and you keep going that way, how long will it take you to get to, go, to, get to the west? Did you ever think about that? 
It's, a, it's an infinite journey. It's never going to happen. That's what he did with my failures and my sin. Do I worry? I worry about things that have no business worrying about. I worry about sickness and I worry about paying bills and I worry about same stuff you worry about. Do I worry about eternity? I haven't worried about eternity since 1977 when Jesus saved me. In the early 80s, I came down with renal cell cancer, renal cell carcinoma about the size of a small football in my kidney. It was a death sentence. The night after I found out, <laughs> well, it was the longest night of my life. But I'm saved. And all, everything in my life was passing before my face as in my mind, is it was just it was just running at high speed. I thought about my kids, and I thought about people I loved, and I thought about who's going to take care of this, and what's going to happen with that. But there's one thing I did not think about that night. I did not think about where I'm going to go. Because that was all taken away. All the doubts, all the dread, all the fear, gone. Because of Jesus. Because he keeps his word. And he really does save sinners. All by himself. No help for me. And he does it right. He does it right. I've been saved for... Over 45 years now, and I've never had one minute of doubt as to where I'm going to spend eternity. Not one fear. And I'm free. What do you mean free? I mean free. The Bible says, if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. He said, Pastor, are you free to sin? I am. I am. I don't want to. But I can't seem to quit. Any of you managed to quit? I'm free. 